All right, all right. Good day to all of you. Good to have you. Welcome to Village Church. Uh, my name is Mark. I'm the lead pastor, teaching pastor here at the church. Welcome to Langley North as well. Glad you guys are here. Uh, we are in the Gospel of Matthew. We have a lot of work to do today, so open up your Bibles. Uh, and, uh, and, and really, this is a story that's a famous story of Jesus. Um, and it's going to rock us a bit. It's a confrontational story, but that's good. Uh, because what it does is it kind of says that the way the world functions uh, is wrong, but the way that the kingdom functions is right, but it's all going to be upside down and backwards, and Jesus is going to kind of pull a veil back and go, the way that we naturally think about things is wrong, which is really good because this is one of those stories that if you feel kind of beat up over the last couple weeks, like if you feel like, man, I'm not living up to it, I, I worship money or family or comfort or routine or whatever, and Jesus has been calling me out over and over again, then this story is going to go, okay, I actually needed that. Because this story is a beautiful story that the world has got it upside down and backwards when it comes at us and continuously wants justice, but we serve a God of such grace, such extravagant grace, that it almost doesn't even make any sense. Okay, so this is the story. Let me, let me put the story in front of you. I'm going to read it in full, and then I'm just going to kind of get into it and unpack it. So Matthew chapter 20, we accomplished another chapter. We're through another chapter. Yay, praise God. We're moving toward the end. That's a good thing. Three years. All right, that's good. Um, and so here we go. Matthew chapter 20. Look at verse 1. I'll just read all the verses and then, and then go through it. It says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for the vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever's right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. Verse 8. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge me my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Now, this is an awful business plan. Here's who this story completely messes up. All the good capitalists and all the good union workers. Everybody gets messed up in this system. But this is what one writer has called the mathematics of grace. They don't make sense. You came, so here's a guy. He goes and hires all these people. There's a bunch of people that come at 6 a.m. That's the first watch. The Jewish workday went from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., which you can see, by the way, why Sabbath was so important to God. Because they worked harder than us. 
6 a.m. to 6 p.m., right? We roll in at like 10, leave at 4, right? We're like, ooh, that was a tough day. Need a Sabbath. And you know, not just one, Lord, I need two. Saturday and Sunday. And God's like, ah, lazy. I gave you one, not two. And so these guys worked from 6 a.m. And they worked tirelessly and they agreed to this price. But then the guys who come in right at the end of the day, like they roll in like a couple of millennials. And they're like, what? I worked an hour, Right? And they're like, ooh, it's tough. i got to take off my backpack and my toque, right? And they work for their hard hour, and then this boss comes, and he rewards that nonsense. He rewards that laziness. He rewards the fact that they came and worked for one hour. What is the deal? This is bad capitalism, a bad way to run a business. Union workers will be freaking out about this. And yet Jesus goes, this is the kingdom. And here's the massive thing we learn from this, which is beautiful and life-changing for every single one of us. This mathematics of grace is very important when it comes to you and I and our salvation and, and the nature of our souls in the universe, because the reality is this. The church, for all the bad, listen, when I came into the church, all right, I had been, I had, I had picked up a lot of habits in my life before I ever walked into a church. When I was 19 and I walked in and I was a chain smoker, and I walked into the church, and I started kind of engaging with the youth group. And here's what I thought would happen. I thought the people in the church would look at me, and the leaders in the church would judge me and keep their distance from me. And rightfully so, because I, didn't, I, I literally didn't look or sound like any of the other people. Like, I, I would stand outside this window every week and just smoke before the service. And then finally someone came and they said, you know the entire worship team is gathered behind that window, right? Every single Sunday morning, and you're like staring at it going, right? You realize that. We're all looking at you, bro. I'm like, oh. Crap, I can't believe that. And so I thought everyone would keep their distance from me. And here was the crazy thing. You know what the, 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 the youth pastor did? He leaned into me, came to me one day, he goes, I want you to preach. I want you to get up and actually teach the Bible to our youth. And I'm like, what? no, that doesn't make any sense. I smoke. And he goes, yeah, yeah, I know. I said, I'm not ready. He goes, yeah, yeah, I don't know, get up there. What is that? Why would he do that? You know why? Because he learned this story well enough. My, uh, when I first, you know who else learned this story really well? And, and is uh, Aaron's parent, my wife's parents. Because when I showed up, <laughs> there is no reason those people shouldn't have locked me out of their life very quickly. All right? Like I'm talking, yeah, chain smoker, yeah, swear, every other. I'm talking the first time we had dinner with them. All right, we're sitting down as a, as, as a family. They've invited me into their home. I'm dating their daughter. They're about to go to Africa on a, on a month-long trip and leave her home with me. All right? We sit down for our first meal, and I'm sitting there, and I invite my best friend into the meal, and we're all sitting around having dinner. And all I did for the whole meal was sit with my buddy and kind of talk under our breath and laugh at the whole table. And just and they're like eating, and I'm like, me. All right, listen, guy shows up dating one of my daughters like that, it's over. It is done, man. Baggy pants, skateboard, chain wallet. Done. So why didn't they cut me off? Why didn't they say oh, you're done? Why would they get me to get up and preach when I'm not ready? I'm just not there. My character's not there. Why? Because of stories like this. See, here's where the world needs to 
knock off their arrogance in regard to the church. I talk to so many skeptics. If you're a skeptic, awesome. I'm glad you're here. Sometimes you have an arrogance about you where you look in at the church and go, if the church could just learn from the world and put away all those ancient ideas and just catch up, then maybe, maybe I could go to church. Maybe I could be part of Christianity if it would just learn from the world a little bit about how to actually do things. And here we get a story where the church, where the, where the people outside the world, the skeptics better silence themselves before a story like this and learn something from the church. That in contrast to the way that the world functions, where justice and burden is all that we function in, this story comes along and goes, once you've experienced the grace of God in your life, you have no choice but to, to treat other people with grace. And that kind of grace is going to make the world a better place. And so the world better learn from it. Take from the church something good and go, my gosh, look at this thing. Undeserved favor. Learn from that. Look at the, way, the ethic of Jesus and go, maybe I have something to learn about how to make the world a better place. Maybe there's something in this that's supposed to actually confront me and change me. And so he says this, for the kingdom of heaven, right there, just stop right there for a sec. Just underline that term, kingdom of heaven. Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean heaven. It doesn't mean going to heaven when you die. That's kind of what the church has done with it. That's not what it means. The kingdom in this phrase is the reign, the basileu in, in the original language. It's the rule or the reign of God. And so literally what he's saying is he's going to tell a story and he's going to say, here's the reality. The world is divided up between two kinds of people. The two kinds of people are people who are in the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God and people who aren't. In the kingdom of God, right? So, so there's, it's not going to heaven when you die and going to a spiritual cloud place or whatever. He's talking about the kingdom. The question is about who's in it right now. Who belongs to the kingdom right now? And there's only, the world's divided up between people who belong to the kingdom and people who don't belong to the kingdom. Meaning the reign and the rule of God is over their life. That people come under the authority of God. Because here's the beautiful thing. Recognize how many stories that we read. I, um... I remember I've told you this before. I was in a Bible college, in my last year of Bible college, and the uh, guidance counselor lady called me in and she said, hey, you're not actually done high school yet. You can't graduate college. I'm like, sorry, what are you talking about? And she's like, uh, we realized you were missing one credit. You were missing an in English credit from high school. Now I'm, I'm 23, degree, uh, 23 years old. I've finished college. And she goes, you got to go back to summer school. Sorry? High school. So I get, you know, my backpack, and I go into summer school for eight weeks with a bunch of, like, like teenagers. I'm sitting there in grade 12 English. Now, I never told them I'd almost done college, so to them, I was brilliant. I was like Doogie Howser, all right? I was just rolling it. I was like, I don't know, uh, Plato says. They're like, he's read Plato? What's Plato? Right? And so uh, I remember this project that we had to do. We're, we're working on King Lear, and I took the, the whole story of King Lear, and I took the, you know, the song American Pie by Don McLean, and I rewrote the entire eight-minute song to tell the story of King Lear. Bye-bye to King Lear's state of mind. It's the play where everyone dies. And they were singing. So I, I, I rewrote that song. And what I realized was beautiful about that song, is it, or not the song, the, the, the actual story, the King Lear story, the Shakespeare story, is it's a gospel story. It's a story about a king who goes mad, and because he's mad, 
all of the land is messed up. And until the king can get his brain back, the land is going to be chaotic. This is every story we tell. This is, this is Lion King. The world's a mess until there's a king who's proper in rulership. This is Star Wars. Everything's out of whack until there can be authority and structure and rulership proper. This is what the kingdom means. It means that life is chaotic until you come under the authority of the king. It means there will be no peace, no justice, no understanding. There will continue to be brokenness and sin until you let the king sit on his throne and start to reign. All these stories we tell are gospel. They're crying out for the gospel to be true. Put the king on the throne. This is what he's talking about, about the kingdom of heaven. It's people who've come under the authority of God and said, you know what? It feels counterintuitive to come under your authority, but I need to do it for the sake of my own soul. I need to do it for the sake of eternity. And there's going to be moments where it pushes up against you and you got to choose his authority over your own. There's going to be moments when you go, you know, you know what I'd naturally like to do? I would like to believe that, that every single religion leads to heaven. I would like to believe that. I would like to believe that, you know, all six, seven billion people in the world, that universalism is true, and every single person who's ever existed goes to heaven when they die, and all these are just different paths to the same place. I would love to have the authority in myself to believe something like that. The problem is, is that then I bump up against the text. I bump up against God's word to us, spoken in the Bible, which says, John 14, no one comes to the Father except through me. Acts chapter 4, there is no salvation in any other name under heaven except Jesus. And then I have to make a decision. Am I going to come under the authority and the rulership, or am I going to continue to just do my own thing? That's the kind of question we're talking about. I would love to do whatever I want. Second, uh, you, you would love to do whatever you Just say, hey, I want to sleep around. I want to sleep with as many guys as I want. That might be some of you. Right, because it makes you feel good about your body and it helps you with your daddy issues and, and you want that pleasure in your life. And then you come up against the text and it says, no, 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 hold on. The sexually immoral who haven't aligned their, 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 their ways and their minds and their hearts with the ways of Jesus are outside the kingdom and, and we need to repent and come under and go, okay, now I'm being a... See, these are all authority kingdom questions. It's not about going to heaven when you die. It's about the question of have you understood that you're a kingdom person in the present, in the now? That's the question this story has to put to you, and it confronts you, and then you got to make a decision. What, what kind of person am I? Am I actually a kingdom person, or am I not a kingdom person? Am I going to live my life, money, sexuality, family, whatever it is, and actually put it under the rulership of God or not? That's the beautiful thing about this question. Do you want to serve this kind of God or not? That's what he's talking about. So then he says this. For the kingdom of heaven, the rulership, the reign of God, the sphere of God is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And so obviously this is uh, God. He's the ruler. And then he has a foreman, Jesus, and he goes out. Laborers are you and I. And our denarius is eternal life. And the work day is our lifetime. And the evening when he shows up to pay us is eternity. That's how this story's working. That's how the parable works. And so he goes out and hires these laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, which in that time you basically make a denarius, you know, in one day. And then it says this. Something very interesting about this. Uh, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. So uh, in your Bible... Literally underline or circle, whatever you do, double tap if you got an iPhone, um, the word idle, because that popped for me. Here's a bunch of people 
sitting idle in the marketplace, and they need Jesus to walk up to them and say, wake up. And some, so there's a couple layers to this. Some of you just on a Christian level are sitting idle right now. Like you're not in the game. Your money's still in your pocket. You don't serve. You don't get in community. You don't sacrifice. You are sitting doing nothing. You are idle. You, have, you were never given a vision for your life. No one's ever looked at you and said, you know, there's more to make. There's more to life than making money. There's more to life than making a nice, comfortable life for yourself. You're sitting idle right now, even as a believer. And Jesus is walking up to you in the marketplace and saying, hey, wake up. You want a vision? I'll give you one. Go into the vineyard and do kingdom work. Get busy. This is a war we're in the midst of. And so you need to wake up. Stop coasting. This is wartime. Some of us, this is a great analogy John Piper gives. Is he talks about the idea that a lot of Christians are just kind of living like it's, hey, it's good times. We're all legit. Everything's fine. He's like, we're living in wartime right now. Remember in wartime what our grandparents had to do? When World War II is going on, they have to sacrifice. They have to be disciplined. They're like, like, like sewing button. When's the last time you sewed a button on your clothes? My generation, I don't even know what you're talking about. It's like, oh my gosh, the button fell off. Throw that out. I'm going H&M. My grandma'd be like, what? Let me make a button from scratch. <laughs> Take some milk. Put it in the freezer, whatever. I don't know, what are you doing, Grandma? It's insanity. There's men out there fighting, son. It's wartime. Some of you are idle. You're lazy. You're doing nothing. Jesus walks up to you in the marketplace. He says, wake up. I want to give you a vision for your life. I want you to do something amazing. We got a, an email in this week. We, 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 we launched our uh, vision to do Montreal. And Calgary, and just working on timelines and calling you guys, saying, hey, some of you need to go. We're getting emails in, okay, I'll move to Calgary. Okay, there's one uh, girl emailed in recently, she said, I think, I think I'm going to move to Montreal to help start this church. I was pondering maybe between Montreal and Vancouver, and I was asking God, what do you want me to do? And then I came in that Sunday, and I heard your vision for planting a church in Montreal, and I think that might be the answer. So I'm going to walk away from everything and go to Montreal. Man, that's people being called out of the marketplace into the game. It's beautiful. And so there's an idleness even about Christians, but then there's an idleness, I think, on a bigger level, the agnostics or the atheists in the room, um, Life without God is ultimately idle, right? Meaning it's, meaning it's literally like a car, like idle, going nowhere. It's running, but it's not going anywhere. What I mean by that, don't be offended by it. What I mean by that is this, because it might not feel idle. I remember when I, when I was outside the church, people would say, if you don't have God, you know, that means you don't have any uh, meaning in life or whatever. And I, and, and I misunderstood what they were saying because I believe that's true. But I thought what they were saying is I wouldn't feel like I had meaning in my life. And I did feel like I had meaning in my life. But that's not what they meant. What it sounded like they were saying is anybody without God, you know, is just dragging themselves along with a bottle of Jack Daniels and a shotgun just ready to end it. And I was like, I don't feel that way at all. I like life. Life is great. Look around you, by the way, and all your neighbors who have nothing to do with Jesus, nothing to do with God, nothing to do with church. They're happy, right? I was driving here this morning, and people are happy, man. Old people, like, you know, loving on each other. I see my neighbors are cutting their grass. Or they're flirting with each other. They're hugging. They're kissing. They're sitting out there with their lemonades. All right, they're jogging. Everyone's jogging and running. The streets are full with happiness, man. 
No one's going, I thought it would be like everybody without God be walking dead. Life is awful, scratching at the door. It's like a horror movie. I didn't see that at all. Life's fine. That's not what I mean. What I mean is ultimately, like, like behind the veil. Um, um, okay, so the ancient philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, Aquinas, all Socrates, all these guys used to debate something called, uh, in Greek it's called telos, teleos, teleology. And it's a Greek word meaning the end or the goal. And so all the debates in the marketplace back in the ancient Greece were all about teleology. They were all about what is the goal? What is the point? What is the end goal to life at all? And this is what I mean when I say life without God is ultimately meaningless, meaning teleologically, because if there is no God and it's just nature and there is no transcendent, then we're all just going nowhere, kind of hopeless. You're raising your kids to be nice people, but who cares really in the end? Just survive, kids. Just beat the other guy at the own game and get more money than him. Step on his throat if you need to, because we're animals and that's what we do. If, if reincarnation's true, we're a bit still meaningless because we're not sure what we did in the last life that we need to improve in this life so that we have a better next life. Like, how many of us right now, if the point of reincarnation philosophically is that you, you become better than you were in the last life so you can progress, how many of you remember your last life? And you go, oh yeah, I need to be better than that. And if you think you do, it's just a... Bad pizza. Because you can't remember whether you're a bumblebee or a kitten or a robber. You don't know. So how do you improve? You can't. So reincarnation philosophy becomes uh, meaningless. Religion becomes meaningless. Because you try and try and try and try, but you just can't accomplish. You can't live up to the standard God puts on you. So it becomes a burden, which is why many of you ran away from the church when you were kids. Because you read the story of Noah and said, I got to try to be a good person so I don't die in the flood. And you didn't realize that story has nothing to do with Noah being a good person because he's a disaster. Walks around naked, gets drunk. That the whole point of that story is that God is good and the gospel is true. You recognize something I didn't plan to say this, uh, but you recognize something about the Noah story, by the way? It's a beautiful story. When I read it to my kids, sometimes they don't get the point because the story about Noah is this story where God judges the world and he hates sin and he kills everybody except for these eight people in this boat and, and it's because God is good and then he puts a rainbow in the clouds and we go, oh, it's so nice. God likes colors. That must be what that's about. But the reality is this. You know what that story is? In the, you, know what, you know what he puts in the sky in the Hebrew in, 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 uh, in, in Genesis chapter 6? It's called a bow. Rainbow, we say that. It's a bow. And what it meant was a war bow. And what it meant was, listen, for all that time from Genesis 1 to 6, he was firing downward at people. He was saying, you're sinful, I'm going to kill you. And he floods everybody. And then at the end of the story in this beautiful gospel moment, he turns the bow on himself. And he says, no longer will I have the bow pointed down at you. Now it's pointed into the heart of heaven because one day I'm actually going to come down and take my own flood, take the wrath of myself on my own son for you. That's what that story's about. It's not about you being a good guy. So once you start understanding that, then you're not going to be burdened. Then you start to understand, man, teleologically, the meaning in the end of all things is that God gets glory and I serve that glory. That's the point of my whole life. And once that gets organized, 
Then you go, okay, now I have an identity. Now I got something I can live for. Now I'm not idle anymore. Some of you are just idle. You're not moving. The engine's running, but you're mailing it in. And Jesus wants to give you a great vision for your life where he says, I don't want any of you to be idle. Now, I'm not saying any of this. I'm not saying you shouldn't be an atheist and an agnostic because Christianity feels better teleologically. No, no, I'm saying pull the veil back and understand that in reality you, you get a joy, you get a meaning, you get a purpose that then allows you to get through any circumstance of life. But I'm not saying it because I want it to be sentimentally true. If you're an agnostic or an atheist, say, listen, I'm not going to believe in something because it makes me feel better. True. I'm not, listen, I'm not a sentimental guy. I don't know if you figured this out yet. I'm not that sappy. Except with my kids. All right, with my kids, I'm very sappy. Like, if you had a camera on me with my kids, you'd be like, that's a different person. Because, like, even this, uh, this week, I was putting my kids to bed. And my kids looked at me and go, hey, Dad, we heard this. Uh, there's a song called Butterfly Kisses. Can you sing it to us? And I'm like, as long as the church never sees that nonsense, yes. And I pull up the lyrics and Butterfly Kisses. In the midnight prayer. All right, I'm like doing this thing, and then, and then I get to this line, uh, and uh, you know, she'll change her name today. You know that? You know, it's like, oh my gosh, she's gonna get married. And, and my, Hayden goes, uh, Why would she change her name to Dave? Right? Um, <laughs> so I'll never hear that song <laughs> every time I think of it now. It's like, she'll change her name to Dave. Uh, so I'm not a sentimental person. <laughs> Uh, but the reality, except with my kids, all right, I'll get as sappy as I need to get. Uh, but the reality is, I'm not saying you should believe in Christianity because it sentimentally is going to make you feel better. No, no, no. It's actually going to probably make you feel worse sometimes in the end because you're going to have to sacrifice time and money and be persecuted and people aren't going to like you and all that stuff. I'm not saying that. I'm saying because it gives you a p kind of purpose, a kind of meaning that life... That, that, that literally what, what it's saying is when you, when you move away from idleness, when you move away from uh, not having a coherent worldview, what you begin to see when the kingdom comes in is, is there's a coherence to your life. There's a deeper logic to life in general. Yes, we came from somewhere. Origins. There's a reason I'm, I'm moral. I'm going somewhere. There's something to build here on earth that's going to move into the new creation. All of these things give a deeper logic to what you feel. That's what I'm talking about. It's the reason that John 1 says that Jesus, what does he call him? The, the word. In the beginning was the word, and that's the word logos. And back, the ancients used to debate not only teleology, but they used to debate logic. And that's the word logic. It's the word logos. And he, and it says this, the, the, in the beginning was the logos, the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. And, and nothing that was made wasn't made through him. And then in verse 14 of John 1, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, talking about Jesus. Here's the beautiful thing. That in the debates of logic, what is the ultimate meaning of the universe? What's the deeper logic? Christianity comes along and says, it's not an ideology. It's not a religion. It's not principles. It's not some spiritual thing. It's a person. His name is Jesus. That's the logic of life. That's what holds the universe together. That's who's going to give you meaning in the midst of the greatest joys of your life and in the greatest tragedy. And so here's this life that challenges us to go, do I actually have a deeper coherent meaning, understanding, worldview to my life at all? And now you got to ask yourself, what would be the reason I would reject the kingdom? What would be the reason I wouldn't want to become under the kingdom of heaven? What would be the point? 
And that's where things get scary. Ask yourself that question for those of you who wouldn't want to walk into the vineyard and take the invitation of the foreman when he says, I want you to come into the vineyard. Ask yourself, what would make you hesitate? For some of you, it's, I don't know, it's, it's, it's how you feel about it, but that becomes dangerous because you really can't, and here's a crazy matrix, you can't really trust how you feel, right? Because how you feel is already bent toward your best interest. And sometimes truth goes against your best interest, right? So you got to deal with truth, not what you, makes you feel good. And here's the scary part. If you read uh, Neil Postman's book, 1985, built, brilliant prophetic book called Amusing Ourselves to Death, he points out something extremely scary. He talks about the idea of um, George Orwell and Aldous Huxley. And he says this. Um, of course, George Orwell wrote 1984, totalitarian regimes, ruining everybody. And Aldous Huxley wrote A Brave New World. And Postman says this. What Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there'd be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Try to figure out which state we're in. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley, though, feared that the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Hashtag Facebook. Orwell feared we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture. Preoccupied with some equivalent of the feelies, the orgy-porgy, and the centrifugal bumble puppy. In 1984, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In a brave new world, they're controlled by inflicting pleasure. In short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. And this book is about the possibility that Huxley, not Orwell, was right. That's the danger, is you can't trust how you feel because the slavery is how you feel. It's that you are enslaved to your own pleasure. And when your own pleasure bumps up against truth, you choose the pleasure every time. The problem is, is the only pleasure you're choosing is the quick pleasure, the 15 minutes of pleasure, and not thinking about, as we talked about right last week, the week before, the 15 million years of pleasure that's being offered to you when you become a kingdom person, when you take the invitation to enter the vineyard. And so Jesus is saying, listen... You can't just trust how you feel. What's the real reason you don't want to receive this invitation to come to the kingdom? And there's lots of people who go, now here's what gives me hope, by the way, because lots of people who go, you know, nobody really, I remember in our church planning days, see, these guys, you know what's beautiful about it? Um, look at uh, uh, these guys, th these laborers actually um, receive his invitation to go into the vineyard. And, and that's beautiful because I remember when we were planting a church, um, th there was this discussion. I said, okay, I think we're going to plant a church. We gathered these 16 people. And then someone came up to me and said, you know, nobody becomes a Christian anymore in Canada. And I was like, wow, this is a depressing conversation. Why would I, become a, why would I plant a church if no one's ever going to become a Christian again in Canada? We should just pack it up and be done, right? Don't you love Christians, by the way? Like, they're so, dead. like, I, I watch some of these, like, these end-time guys on TV sweating and screaming, and I'm just like, oh my gosh, I don't even want to leave my house. Life is depressing. The world's in shambles, it's disgusting, and no point in going anywhere. Man, and that's the way people view Christians. But then you see a story like this, and this story is hopeful. 
This story is you plant a church, and guess what? 1,100 people get baptized in seven years. I listen to that guy. I'm just going to go home, twist my hair, and be depressed. In a dark room. We in our men's retreat. Five guys came to Jesus on the Saturday night. What's going, what is that? How does that happen? Because people still do receive the invitation of the foreman to walk into the vineyard. You know that. Because people are hungry, and we're hungry, and we're thirsty until we drink of the water of life. That's what John 4 is about. You're going to come here, lady. Why are you here? I'm here to get water. Well, I'll get you water. I'll get you water that you'll never thirst again. Hey, how many times have you been married? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, you've been married five times, and the guy you're living with right now isn't your husband. You know why? Because you're thirsty. No, I have a drink right here. No, you're thirsty. Spiritually, emotionally, and that thirst will never go away. You will keep tracking it until you receive the invitation of the foreman to enter into the vineyard and actually say, okay, now I've got a life. Now I have a vision. Now I have meaning. I can, my soul has been taken care of. My body is being taken care of in the context of salvation. Now, here's the thing. Not because of you, but in spite of you. Because that's a beautiful part of the story. Everyone gets the same. Right? And then the guys who've been in there for a while actually end up complaining about it. Because they look and they say, like, I mean, look at the guys. So uh, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said, Call the laborers, pay them their wages, beginning with the last. I love that. He just wants the guys who were hired first to see it. He just wants to rub their face in it. Make sure we pay the guys who showed up an hour ago first. Just, just, to, just to get this thing, get, get these guys ticked who've been laboring since 6 a.m. Tired! Because they think that all their work and all their sweat in front of God is going to impress him. And they've misunderstood it. And they've thought it since they were kids. They've thought it since they were, they were sitting. I mean, this is, this is what we're born. We're little legalists in our heart. We're all little religious legalists, right? It's like my kids sitting at a restaurant. How many noodles do I have to eat so I can get what? Dessert. How many noodles to impress my father so that I can get the good stuff? That's what we all do. And we do it with God every day. How many good little things do I have to do? And then maybe you'll bless me. And he goes, oh, let's flip this whole thing upside down and really tick those people off. I'm going to give this guy who came in an hour ago deathbed confession. But I've been serving the Lord for 95 years. I'm giving away half my money. Deathbed? That guy doesn't deserve the same as me. Oh, because you think you deserve something. The mathematics of grace say, no, 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 anything you got was undeserved. Now, these guys start complaining about it, right? Verse 11, and on receiving it, they grumbled. They get given what they already worked out to be given, and they grumble about it. Not that any Christian is like this. I don't see any of you guys in this story at all as a pastor. You've never grumbled. I'm just saying there's other churches that that happens grumbling. And then look what he says. You made them equal to us. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Isn't this what we do? We experience life and we grumble to God. Where is your justice, Lord? Bring your justice. This is one of the rumblings all throughout the Bible. Where's your justice? Where's your justice? When are you going to bring... Listen, one of the 
Go to uh, Psalm 73 really quick. I'm just going to read through it for you really quick because I think it's one of the most potent passages in the Bible. I just think some of you need to hear it because right now you're at a place in your life where you can't understand the justice of God right now. You've lost something. Things aren't going well for you. Your marriage is a, is, is, is a wreck. Your kids are, the finances are a disaster. And you ask the prophet question, Habakkuk, where is God in the midst of this? You ask the question that the, that the narratives and through the Old Testament ask. You ask the question of the Psalms. Listen to this. Let's read through this really quick. Psalm 73. <clears throat> Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You ever looked around and see the wicked people, the people who don't believe in Jesus, the people who are immoral, and they're doing good in life, and they've got the square footage and the nice cars and the corner office, and you're like, what the heck? How is this possible that that loser is doing better than me? No, you've never felt that. Listen to what the psalmist says, man. This is great. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. That's a good thing in Old Testament times. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff, speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and they're always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. I'm so pure. I'm so right. I do my devotions every day. How is it that they're doing good and I'm not? For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. I got nothing. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So what do I do? The world, the people who are corrupt in the world do better than the people who aren't. What's the deal? God, how can you give them the same as you've given me? Don't you know? I was here first. I was here at 6 a.m. What's the deal? This question rumbles, comes to fruition in this parable of Jesus. But now we're about to see a glimpse of an answer. Look at what, there's a couple couple answers, but this is one of them. I mean, there's a million answers, very deep. We don't have time to get into it. But verse 16 is a pointer. But when I thought... Listen to this, all that question, here's the end. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their, what? End. In the moment when you're asking the question about the justice and the injustice of God, the answer is the same thing as the parable in Matthew 20. Wait until the landowner shows up and deals out death and judgment. Wait until the end. Because when the end comes, then you can ask your little question about what you thought. See, we have a very arrogant spirit to think we know what to do, how to run the universe. You think you know how to run the universe? It's a very complicated task, by the way. You think you know better than God about what to do about your finances, about your life, about what's going on in poverty around the world? You think you're going to put him on trial for that? You think you know what to do? You think you know what to do? Here's what I'm asking you to do. Wait until the end. When everyone gets dealt out exactly what they're due, then put him on trial. And you won't have a word to say. 
It's the same thing as the parable. He shows up at the end to hand out what people deserve. And the most righteous people who think they deserve the most, he says, I flip it upside down. Because nothing you get. Listen, look at the end of the, look at the, end of the parable. I don't know if time to continue unpacking Matthew or uh, Psalm 73. But look at the end of the parable, Matthew 20. And I'll pray for us. <clears throat> Am I not allowed to do what I choose? Verse 15. Am I not allowed to do what I choose? I love this. I was reading, uh, uh, I was doing devos with my kids this week. And, uh, and all the three girls are on the bed. And I'm like, what's a good Bible story to like rock their world? Because like how many times have they heard like Jesus walked on water? And Jesus loved people. And it's like, yeah, yeah, we get that. I'm like, what story? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. And I look up 2 Kings, right? And I go Elisha. And Elisha's walking along a forest. He's a prophet. And a bunch of boys come running out of the forest. They're like, hey, hey, baldy. Hey, hey, baldy. And they make fun of Elisha because he's bald. And so Elisha, the text says, called down a curse on the boys from the Lord. And two she-bears come out of the forest and maul 42 kids. This is right before bed, by the way. That's in the Bible, that story. My kids actually grabbed the Bible from me and said, you're making that up. And then my littlest daughter, who can't even read, loved the story so much she made me whisper it in her ear so she could say it. So I'm like, she's like, hey, Baldy, hey, Baldy. And then I'm like, and then, and then bears came out. And then bears came out of the forest and mauled 42 boys. 200 boys. All right, so she, she's jacking it up, man. And we go, what kind of story is that? God sent out some she-bears, maul a bunch of boys for making fun of a guy's bald spot? What's going on? Here's his answer. Am I not allowed to do what I choose? You wait until the end, and all this is going to make sense. How could that make sense? A couple she-bears mauling 42 boys. Wait till the end. Don't take your little sliver of moment and think you can figure the universe out. How arrogant is that? Don't walk into a movie halfway through and then leave five minutes in and say, I don't like that movie. You know you got five minutes of a two-hour movie, right, on this planet? You have no idea what came before or what's coming next. No idea. Do I not get to do what I choose? And then he says, um, or do you begrudge my generosity? I love that term. Underline that word generosity. <clears throat> generosity. Do you know how extravagant God is? Like so extravagant, you can't even calculate what he does. The kinds of things he does that are over the top for his own glory that you and I will never know about. You, you, you look out in space, you hear scientists talk about it, you're like, there's a million, trillion, quadrillion stars. It's like, well, why would he do that? Why does he make all those? Because he doesn't care if you see them, they're for him. He's over the top. It's extravagant. I was scrolling through one of my news feeds this week. I saw a crazy thing. Uh, you, so you've heard crickets, right? Like sitting at nighttime, you're outside. You're... Now, this guy took the sound of crickets. This was crazy. He took the sound of crickets, which are like, let's say, a thousand crickets at that time, and he slowed the audio down. And the audio, when it got slowed down, he heard all these crickets in unison singing the exact same song, and it sounds exactly, this was actually weird, like an angelic choir. Like literally these crickets are like, they have a, like a four-part harmony. And they're like, ha, 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 ha. 
I don't know what they're, they're just, these crickets are singing crickets, like the stuff you go, shut up cricket, I'm going to bed. That thing is like worshiping God. That's how crazy extravagant he is. He makes crickets sing to him. Are you going to take away from my generosity, he says? Are you going to take away from that? Now, I don't have time to unpack all the rest of this. Here's the point. How is it possible that this, this vineyard owner gives all this grace and grace and grace and undeserved? It's undeserved. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Why is he such a bad capitalist? He can do that because Jesus Christ took on all the wrath that you and I deserved all the justice that he should have brought on us because we showed up an hour before work was done, all the idleness, all the sin, Jesus took it on himself. He reversed the pattern that was in the ancient world where if you were a king and you had servants, if you did something wrong, I remember I was watching a movie, The Last Emperor, and he was the last emperor of China. He was this kid, and they came up and they said, what happens when you do something wrong? And he says, one of my servants get beaten. Like, what are you talking about? He breaks a, a pot, and they took one of the servants out, and they beat him. And here's Jesus. He comes and reverses the ancient pattern. He goes, no, no, no. When you do something wrong, the king gets beaten for you. That's why God could be this extravagant and generous and show this much grace. So, Father, I just pray that we're, our hearts and minds would be awed by this reality, and our lives would be changed by your generosity in this mathematics of grace, that we would then show it to our workplaces our husbands, our wives, our kids, that this would revolutionize the way we literally function in the world. Thank you, Jesus, that you've done this for us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, you can move to change not only what we do, but what we want to do and how we want to serve people in grace rather than in justice. Let us have this perspective. In Jesus' great name we pray, amen. Okay, guys, thank you for being here. Go be the church. We've gathered, now scattered, be on mission. Uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks for being here.